Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. It's CJ. Hope everyone's having a fantastic day. I want to welcome all those tuning in. Today is Tuesday, December the 7th, and V is taking a couple of time, a couple of days off. It's been quality time with family, which is very well deserved. Uh, so I'll be hosting today for Matthew Errett. And it's that time again. Matthew needs no introduction at all. But do us a favor. Go check out his work. Uh, great sites, the Canadian, CanadianPatriot.org. You can also check out his work over at the risingtidefoundation.net. And then don't forget also to support Matthew over on his Substack. The links are in the description. Matthew, great day. How are you, sir? Hey, yeah, absolutely. Very well. Um, and always appreciate you uh, pumping my, my websites and the Substack. So yeah, if people want to get the Substack subscription, um, those are pretty much going out every single day. Something new comes out. Um, if you get a paid subscription, you get invitations to all of our live lectures that we host every week. Bonus. Um, and the, uh, the newest article there, uh, features something on the British empire, because even today, a lot of people are getting very confused about where the, the source, the causality of a lot of our problems is coming from. And because they, they, you know, our education system was designed in such a way to cripple our ability to think through cause and effect in a, in a principled way, and especially intention, um, this, it's useful to just be to revisit, well, what is the role of the British Empire? Because no empire has ever just dissolved itself mm -hmm. and let its colonies go free willfully. It, it, that that always happens with a fight. But we are told in our history books that the British Empire just decided that they had enough after World War Two. The, <laughs> the Americans were just, you know, too strong, new big boys on the on campus. And they just absolved themselves of responsibility for being for carrying the white man's burden and the Americans were happy to oblige and picked it up. And, and it's been an American empire for the past 75 years ever since. And that's the mythology. That's the way the story goes. And that's what I believed as a Canadian. I think a lot of Americans believe that too. And most of the world believes that. Mm -hmm. But when you start actually, you know, scratching away at the surface of that, that mythology, you start realizing now the British never disappeared as an empire, not as the political sort of outward form of it not the british people obviously i'm not talking about those things but when you actually look at the the interconnected dimensions of british intelligence the old hereditary structures that maintained continuity for well over 2000 to 2000 years which happened to be localized you know since 1688 within the the british isles it never disappeared it's a it's a it's an international financier intelligence gathering um you know covert clandestine um operation which has always had certain characteristics about it and one of the things that is a characteristic for the past 250 or so years 
has been the the driving uh, obsession to undo the American Revolution. And and if it couldn't be done militarily from without, you know, if it couldn't mm -hmm. be done that way through brute force, as was tried in 1812 or again with the proxy war that the British were fighting against the uh, the um, the Republicans by supporting the, the slaveocracy of the South, which received massive logistical and military support uh, from the British Empire, kind of like what we see with Syria in modern times. If people want to get a sense of what the Civil War was, look at the look at the Syrian Civil War. It really, you know, and I think at this point, everyone is aware that the radical um, terrorists were being were just sort of masquerading as rebel fighters against big bad butcher Assad. And back then mm -hmm. it was big bad butcher Lincoln yeah. um, and, you know, the Confederate against slave power, which was interconnected with the Wall Street, um, what are called the Copperhead, the Copperhead Democrats that were pretty much the, the Wall Street Democrats also aligned with British intelligence. Um, they were all part of the same um, multi-headed hydra that Lincoln had to do battle with on a variety of fronts. We're just told the, the simplistic hallmark version of it, um, of, you know, North versus South, free versus slave. But it's so much more than that. So that that also failed. The Union was preserved. And not only was it preserved, but, you know, internationally. We had the uh, the extension of the the successful operating principles of the American system of political economy, of protectionism, long term credit emissions mm -hmm. for big projects yeah. that would increase the productive powers of labor of the society, right? Increase people's intelligence, and that entire system was anti British free trade. It was anti monetarist. It was not based on the worshiping of money. And if if you read Lincoln, you read any of his economic advisors, you read a lot of the great presidents who get shot at, including McKinley, the last great Lincoln Republican, uh, who was killed while in office in 1901. You read Ulysses S. Grant, you get a, a firm sense that it was understood that money is just something we create. It's a tool that could be either used on behalf of an empire to enslave or used on behalf of a Republican form of society to uplift, right? It's just like something that that it's it it's better than carrying eggs on your shoulders to barter right all the time it's you know it's a bill of exchange we agree that it has value more convenient than like lugging a wagon full of gold wherever you go um so its moral value is really dependent upon what your society is doing what are the goals your society is committed on accomplishing accomplishing and in that sense the the economic system can be a servant like lincoln said it could be a servant for the people or if you don't have any goals and you just live in speculative, you know, money worshiping, um, which is not a new thing, right? This goes mm -hmm. back a long time. You just want to yep. make money with money by gambling. Um, then, yeah, you will become more myopic. Other forces that don't care about your well-being that are supranational are going to increasingly define your, your existence as you lose touch with your future and your past and you will become a slave. So, you know, internationally, Russia, China... Uh, was increasingly adopting this policy. Japan, the Meiji Restoration, had a period where it was not yet determined whether Japan was going to go for a, an imperial modality um, sponsored with help of the British or whether it was going to go with this American pro-development orientation, pro-cooperation. Um, but that was a big thing. R America was helping Japan build rail, build na utilizing a, na a national banking structure. They were doing the same thing for Russia. Uh, with American system allies that we, we've spoken about many times, building the Trans-Siberian Railway, protective 
tariffs, all this stuff was, was mm-hmm. going on. And one of the key things, which touches on what I want to talk about today, which is the Middle East and the, the shifting of the geopolitical landscape in a very positive way, is um, has its precedent with Otto von Bismarck. And what Bismarck, because Bismarck was also a, a great friend of the American cause, and he became very wise early on to the nature of the British British intrigues to try to get constant wars amongst great powers of Europe. And he was always doing backdoor diplomacy to try to not only keep Germany from getting sucked into these wars, but also uh, positive alliances is what he was working on always with Russia, with France. And if he hadn't been ousted in 1890, you could guarantee there would have been no way World War One would have been initiated. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But he had a policy not only with Europe, but also with the Ottoman Empire. You know, the Ottoman Empire had been manipulated a lot by this time. Um, there's a lot of corruption there, a lot of division. And uh, there was a movement within the Ottoman Empire's uh, intelligentsia that recognized that it was going to be destroyed if it didn't accept the necessity for technological development. And yep. the thing driving that process was rail. So Germany had initiated what was called the Berlin to Baghdad Railway, a rail line from, from Iraq all the way up into Germany with extensions all over branches all over the place. And this was something moving ahead at a fast, fast pace by the throughout the 1880s, 1890s and, uh, and beyond. Yeah, it's very interesting, Matthew, to look at that mm-hmm. through history and then also fast forward in terms of and not to get too far off the off the subject, but you see that the alignment of that, the 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 influence of the British in, in particular with George Bush, with Tony Blair, uh, and and hence again with any effort in the South China Sea with the United States and, and British, kind of like the same way, the five eyes, there's particular reasons why, you know, that happens. Uh, you're probably exposed to a little bit more or not necessarily a little bit more, but in, in Canada where we pretty much witnessed, you know, Justin Trudeau pretty much swear alliance to the queen and that, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's that's what he does. But yeah, but the, definitely the geopolitical uh, things are shifting, uh, you know, fairly quickly here. And I think mm-hmm. hence that's why the United States is taking any type of action where we're almost entering that desperate desperation mode, in particular with the Middle East, uh, Matthew. You got it. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly that. That sets up the parallel really nicely, because the reason why the Berlin to Baghdad railway failed and the Ottoman Empire was severed at that time is has a lot to do with what we're doing today, with what's going on today, even though we're separated by many by many generations. The, the brilliance of Bismarck's insight um, into how to break the rules, because the empire exists by keeping us into a fixed system of scarcity and division. So the less you can allow for victim nations to have a constructive um, rail roads, other forms of, of interactivity trade with their own neighbors, the more you can pr- prevent that, the easier it is going to be to inflame um, fuel or fuel the fires of um, of war, getting people to fight for scarcity, getting them to fight for their differences, whether it's linguistic, ethno, religious, whatever. Uh, you could always just poke and inflame um, these types of ignorant uh, prejudices. Mm-hmm. And that's been something going on for a long time. So this would have completely broken that. And this is where at the time, unfortunately, like I said, Bismarck was ousted. A bunch of backdoor uh, agreements were signed, military pacts to get uh, France and uh, England to get into a conflict with uh, on be- alongside Russia um, against Germany and and its you know Ottoman allies. That is what effectively just created the the 
the this you know unstoppable momentum towards war and also anarchist movements there's sort of like color revolution mo movements both within russia sponsored by wall street the you know the shift uh banking house as yes. well as milner the roundtable groups were funding color revolutionary activities to overthrow and destabilize uh the romanovs but also in in the ottoman empire you had things like the young turk movement organized mm -hmm. by bolsheviks effectively like uh like parvis alexander helfand who is a, a leading organizer with a bunch of Masonic organizations from Italy, which had no mm. nothing to do with the uh, the Ottoman or the, the Turkish cause, but they found themselves organizing the Young Turk movement that destabilized <laughs> and overthrew the old regime that was pro-development. So this all was a, a recipe for chaos that just littered the 20th century. So now we're in a situation where we do seem to have people learning, like nations who have actual competent leadership and want to have a future are looking to their past with a much more serious scrutinizing eye and are I've seen so far over the past eight years, especially looking at Russia and China and increasingly now Iran, who, who's jumped on board as the third major um, ancient religion or not religion, sorry, ancient civilization, which is working together with these other uh, major powers and major civilizational forces. Mm -hmm. uh, you have now a navigation through the minefield of chaos, which we've never seen such a power structure exist in the first place around principles of cooperation, win-win development, but also navigate and avoid the traps that have been set for them along the way. So just like, you know, the rail system from, from Germany to Iraq was this one of the biggest drivers for what became World War I. Same thing today, the new Silk Road, the Belt and Road Initiative, which is increasingly bringing real development throughout the entire Southwest Asia, Central Asia, all the way from East to West and North to South as well. Right. This is what is driving the Imperial, everybody who is drunk off of a little bit too much Kissinger and Zbigniew Brzezinski theorizing. <laughs> yes, um, indeed, indeed. <laughs> are, uh, are just obsessed with destroying that. Yeah. yeah. Well, let, yeah, let's um, let, let's jump into it because it is it is very interesting. You know, we're witnessing real projects being developed, real infrastructure projects. So go for it, Matthew. What uh, what uh, sure. go ahead and sh hit that share screen. Let's let's go through it. I'm going to do it. Yes, that's a great idea. So I'm going to. All right. Share screen. I'm always a little bit slow on this one. I'm sorry. Window. Here we are. Let me know if you can see this. You got that? Uh, CJ, can you see my screen? There it goes. Can you, can you right. see that? Yep, we can see it. Okay. So yeah, there's a lot going on. And I mean, a, a lot of people are used to just looking at uh, their back backyard locally, whether it's Canada, the US, Europe, and there's a lot of reasons to be more than disappointed with humanity's behavior. Um, but as, as we're talking, it's always it's always useful to have a global approach because there is sanity. There is actual sane policymaking and a sane form of very competent, creative battle happening right now outside of our own transatlantic NATO cage. Um, what you have there is a picture of the uh, the economic cooperation organization, which involves uh, several nations, including Iran, Turkey, um, all of the stands, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, Turkey. Menistan, um and uh and Iran I don't know if I said that but that was a meeting that just happened on the 15th of um 
of November. Hmm. No, no, sorry, it was the 28th of November. And a bunch of very, very positive developments arose out of this very important undercovered meeting um, because the Western media really didn't cover that. Or if they did, they tried to, to frame it in geopolitical terms uh, that really would deceive you about what actually happened. And on the right is just something that happened this week. I think it was even yesterday where Putin just showed up for a flash meeting with, uh, with Modi in India for the first time in two years. Uh, together, they signed 28 deals. Uh, between the Russians and the Indians, including a 10-year defense contract, a defense cooperation agreement. Um, there were programs to cooperate and advance the what's called the International North-South uh, sorry, Transport Corridor. This is one image of it uh, that involves about 14 countries, um, that involves railroads, energy grids, other corridors stretching from Moscow all the way down um, through Central Asian regions into Tehran, down into the Chabahar port and Bandar Abbas port on the southern coasts of Iran, um, with branches also into the Gwadar port of Pakistan and Mumbai. Um, so you have this happening. Um, wow. I think, you know, there's so many things. They, they made cooperation agreements on, uh, on nuclear energy development, on space technology development, um, a whole variety of things. And keep in mind, India, along with Pakistan, have increasingly been a brought in as full members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, uh, which has as its bedrock or has had as its bedrock Russia and China for some time, but now involves also various members who had been induced to be enemies for a long time by Anglo-American manipulation. But we're finding now new spheres of common interest being set up because ultimately what's been going on is all of these countries in the Middle East, in Central Asia, in Asia, are realizing that they were they're all, everyone is disposable. And even those who had been performing a negative role within the, the, the great game over the past century or more. Um, and, you know, here I would include figures of the Gulf states that had been, that had benefited. They got a lot of money and wealth by playing along with the rules of the Anglo-American game of oil geopolitics. They also are realizing that they are ultimately disposable. Turkey, which played a major role at various times, um, as a part of NATO, um, as an aspiring member of the European Union, um, the European Monetary Union. Uh, and as such, you know, Turkey was offered a lot of promises, as was as was Saudi Arabia, as was Qatar. As long as you play by the rules of our game, they were told, you will, you will get privileges, you will be granted great um, spheres of influence managing the greater, the new Ottoman Empire, it, 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 you know, for one part of the, the Turkish, you know, imperial mentality, and then you'd be able to, and the other Wahhabite groups in, in Saudi Arabia would be the managers of another part of the Middle Eastern zone of influence, but always under the control of the higher British hand manipulating everybody. Um, so now they're, you know, the leaders of these various countries are seeing not only that they are disposable, that there's a little bit of Saddam Hussein in all of them, because Saddam Hussein <laughs> also played a role, right? Yep. Um, with Donald Rumsfeld in, in initiating the Iraq-Iran war, and he was an ally of the Americans um, in the 1980s. He also played a role, along with people like Gaddafi earlier on um, in the 70s and 80s, as part of what's called the Safari Club. It was a major operation uh, that involved Pakistani banks. It involved many Arab states um, and some African nations uh, it, that would, you know, 
promises were given to, you know, we'll give you great power, Saddam Hussein and we'll, and Gaddafi, and we'll protect you and keep you in a state of privilege. But you have to now maintain um, an infrastructure system in place that involves massive drug money laundering, terrorist funding, and other things, along with in, in complicity with um, the major international financial centers. So they were, you know, they were all, they all sort of faced the reality at their own points that uh, they were playthings to be disposed of whenever it was fit by the players of the game. Um, so now it's not just that realization, but it's the fact that there is this newer dynamic. As I mentioned, there's the uh, more positive future being provided where it's based not upon win-lose geopolitics, the idea that wealth only comes by stealing it from somewhere, that if you have wealth or abundance in one part of a system, that must mean that you have to have less wealth and less abundance in another part of this system, which is, again, that's the, that's the principle of a closed system of entropy or um, zero sum, right? That's Hobbesian. So this other view that Russia and China are providing with Iran is that no, we can we have creativity. We are we are a creature that can change the rules of the game if the game itself is is premised on um, rules that will destroy us. Mm -hmm. So human beings are creature of free will, morality, and reason. When all of those work together, we we can tune ourselves not to the will of the elite or the hereditary powerful that want to project themselves as the dominant master class but rather to the actual will of the universe itself, to the creator of the laws of the universe. Some call this force God, <laughs> a creative loving God that we are made in the image of. So it has different expressions in different parts of the world based upon whatever culture you're looking at, but you're going to find that in various, uh, most of the world's dominant cultures, this there's a sensitivity to this part of the human condition, which is more than the sum of our parts, right? Yeah. We have a soul. It, it, it is not locatable within the brain, within the heart, within the body itself, uh, physically, it's something which transcends and infuses meaning into the behavior of the, the material, atomic, or molecular parts of our body that we share in common with the apes, right? There's not that much physiologically different between a human being and a gorilla, except the gorilla is obviously stronger, but other, otherwise, physiologically, DNA-wise, very similar. So the, the imperialist would say, no, the law of the jungle is the law of people. We are, by our nature, selfish, Nations are thus selfish, and the only way to, I guess you could say, um, bring about order is to have to get rid of nations and to make people live in an illusion of freedom while in reality having none of it. Right. And yeah. only the enlightened elite above the system who control the shadows on the cave wall can, can actually know what the game is about, but no one else is, is allowed to know. Mm -hmm. so yep. that, that's the law of the jungle and that's not how human society works and whenever we try to maintain that type of system in human society um things go bad we get more depressed we get more uh, out of whack with our true nature we don't understand what the hell it is necessarily and uh, ultimately we go into collapse modes where civilizations do go into dark ages and that's what we're on the verge of right now if we don't get our shit together very fast the way russia and china and iran have demonstrated yeah, yeah, very well said. Completely agree. And and you know, most uh, U.S. media did not even cover any of the significance of the of those agreements that were signed, and particularly yeah. with the military, uh, really solidified the relationship of of Russia and India and uh, the path forward. And you know, I was 
joking when that first came out and I said that it looks like uh, India is ready for some good old America freedom uh, <laughs> <laughs> next. But um, yeah, it's very interesting to see this shift occurring. Matthew, keep keep going, please. Absolutely. Yeah. And also, you know, this is a good slap in the face because what's going to happen tomorrow is the beginning of the uh, the International Democracy Summit that Biden has uh, pulled together. <laughs> yes. We talked about it last week, right? <laughs> India is invited. Yeah. Um, but this is a very clear statement. They, the fact that they chose this moment to unveil this because they need India to be a part of the Quad, which is run by the U.S. as a NATO, NATO of the Pacific against China and against um, Pakistan and everyone, frankly. Um, half the world is not invited to this democracy summit. So India has very, very, very clearly made its its um, intention known about what role it sees itself playing in the coming new system that is quickly coming online. Um, what also hasn't been talked about are the other agreements that came out of the uh, this summit. And just to just to be quick, I want to just remind people that this north south uh, transportation corridor is not in opposition to the Belt and Road Initiative. This is one image of the middle and the northern corridors of the Belt and Road Initiative from China to uh, Europe yep, great with point. one corridor that's longer, 10,000 kilometers, taking more time. Another one that's quicker, 7,000 kilometers, but that is separated by the Caspian Sea, which is a bit annoying because you got to, you know, you can't build a bridge across the Caspian. So you got to like unload all your freight, move it in boats and then reload it back on a trains and then move it on. And, you know, that, that's something that can be resolved. But anyway, that these are the two um, major corridors. Um, that are synergistic. They're not in opposition. These are all part of the same thing with the North-South Corridor, even though our Western media is telling us these are two opposing things where Russia has its interests <laughs> with the North-South and China has its interests with the East-West. And they're really, really, they don't trust each other. But again, that's media spin. That's bullshit. Right. Um, yeah. Yep. This is featuring the Southern Corridor, one of the branches of the developing Southern Corridor, which is the most potent of the, of the three, I think. Not all three should be built. And but this one is really becoming more realized every day, especially coming out of these conferences, which involves bringing rail into um, throughout all the stands, right? Throughout Turkmenistan, into Iran, um, throughout Syria. And currently there is development of the first rail line connecting Iran and Iraq uh, through the Shalamshe Basra Railway. It's a short, it's a small rail line, but it is part of a much, much broader um connection that could go all the way through Iraq and into Syria and into Lebanon um, with ports along the Latakia. Wow, port that's very significant. Wow. Yeah, super good. Amazing. Super, super good. And I would just Amazing. say here on that one, just recently, the ambassador from Iran to Iraq had said that Iraq can be connected to the to China through the railway of Iran and increase its strategic importance in the region. This will be a very big change, and Iran's railway will be connected to Iraq and Syria and to the Mediterranean. So this is not just me talking here, and he's directly referring to a 2018 uh, provisional agreement that was signed between Iraq and Iran uh, to build a 1,570-kilometer uh, 1, uh, railway from the Persian Gulf to Latakia through Syria. So that's already been signed on, and there's been a lot of disruption to, to block this, including the ouster of the Almaty government of Iraq in uh the beginning of or at the end of 2020 and al-mahdi had already signed on to integrating iraq into the belt and road initiative mm -hmm. um, with china as well as the oil for um construction um infrastructure agreement that the new government that had replaced mahdi who was forced to resign by sort of color revolution uh type of fervor organized by the west he was he was ousted that that deal was was trashed 
the new government has been much more malleable to Western interests and hasn't really upgraded it yet, but they're moving in piecemeal form still. Um, that's why Iraq right now is the only country of the Middle East, along with Israel, who's a, who's been invited to the democracy summit because they mm. want to put incentives and pressure and threats on the Iraqi government. Um, if they lose Iraq, they lose everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I believe that the deadline is quickly approaching for U.S. military assets to be pulled from Iraq, whether that happens or not, Matthew, I, I, I don't know. But obviously, yes, correct in terms of why, you know, the U.S. influence into Iraq. It was very convenient, Matthew, when they announced that they were pulling troops out of Syria, that they said, well, we're going to send them to Iraq instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> very yeah. convenient. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, there, there's definitely forces that are um, trying to do everything possible to maintain, to keep putting fuel on the fire in the Middle East. But the opportunities to put that fuel are disappearing. The, the more the fires are put out, have pouring fuel where there is no fire doesn't really help much. So this is really, really quite good, though we see still desperation. We still see Biden making all sorts of promises to the Kurdish uh, fighters who have been used. I mean, the poor Kurds, you got to feel for them. But they've been really like manipulated quite a bit to be a counter gang operation to ISIS, both being sponsored by the same CIA clandestine operations um, as a destabilizing influence with the Kurds being promised, you know, their own Kurdistan country that would be that would take a part of Turkey, a part of Syria, a part of Iraq, a part of Iran, and they'd have their own country. And that's that's up increasingly disappearing. Um, but still, that doesn't stop Biden from promising them support militarily uh, when when they're in need. Um, we, what we just see, though, is a complete shift, right? Um, Ibrahim Raisi is one of, I mean, I'm, I'm developing more and more respect for the, the Iranian pre, uh, president the more I read his work and see the, the, his accomplishments. Um, and keep in mind, you know, like Iran has signed, they've they've already finalized their 20, their $400 billion economic integration and security uh, agreement with China not that long ago. And there's another 25-year agreement on security and economic cooperation with Iran and Russia. So it's very, very much the same thing. Um, and so he said, coming out of this uh, European, uh, not European, sorry, economic cooperation organization um, summit, he said, any kind of obstacle and problem on the path of developing cooperation must be removed so that economic exchanges and interactions among ECO member countries will reach a higher and superior level. Each member of the ECO has a lot of economic potential in various fields, the activation of which can lead to economic prosperity in the region. So the two things that were the biggest in my mind was this new creation of an Iranian uh, sphere of influence, which is very much based on win-win project development, like concrete building of things. Um, the one was this, um, uh, what's called the, uh, uh, the Azerbaijan Turkmenistan Iran, um, deal that involved an oil swap where Turkmenistan, which has the fourth biggest reserves of oil in the world, Iran in the Southern part of Iran has the second world's biggest right after Russia. So Turkmenistan will be selling, um, I, I forget the quantity, but it's, it's a lot of mm-hmm. oil, uh, to Azerbaijan which currently they're separated as I have an image of here, right? So they're, Turkmenistan is here on the right side of the Caspian Sea. Azerbaijan, with its neighbor of Armenia and Georgia, is on the left side of the Caspian Sea. Iran here is the connector between the two. You got Turkey over a little bit further to the left on the border of Iran and uh, connecting also to Georgia. So they're going to sell. Turkmenistan will sell. I said it's five to six million uh, cubic meters um, per a day of oil, of natural gas, actually, sorry, um, 
to Azerbaijan, but it'll be through intermediated through Iran. So Iran's going to receive it, and then Iran will sell the ex- exact same number to Azerbaijan. This is very important because up until now, the Zbigniew Brzezinskiites have been keeping Azerbaijan at the throat of Iran, and the same thing for Turkmenistan. They cut off all economic oil-sharing uh, agreements back in 2017, uh, Turkmenistan and Iran. They've really been at each, at each other's throats, like I said. Same thing for Azerbaijan. Up until just a few weeks ago, there was real saber-rattling for war with the Azerbaij- Azerbaijani government, um, which has deep alliances with uh, Turkey, with Israel. And even remember this time last year, there was this war that had broken out between Armenia and Azerbaijan with Israel supplying a lot of arms to the Azerbaijanis, as well as Turkey supplying mercenaries that had been used formally to destabilize and overthrow Bashar al-Assad and are being protected in the Idlib province of northern Syria to Azerbaijan to fight. Um, ultimately, that was put down through an, a mediation by Russia that could have that could have become a spark plug for something much worse. But the point is, Azerbaijan um, has is because of its alliance with or friendliness with Israel and with Turkey, which have been playing very negative roles for a long time, uh, Iran does not get along well. And this almost went into a shooting war when Azerbaijan had arrested two Iranian truck drivers, not for very good reasons, and uh, as a political statement um, for driving on their territory, they said uh, unannounced or something. I don't know. It was basically a, a political provocation. Iran responded by doing war games right on their border as a message. And Azerbaijan realized, holy shit, they're about to pick a fight with the, you know, fourth <laughs> big military power in the world. And uh, that was a bit of a wake up call. And since then, you had a much more competent uh, mode of diplomatic maneuvering. And so this this uh, integration policy of getting these different nations to start working together again, Iran is going to. Um, pay Turkmenistan for, you know, unpaid bills back from like 20 years ago. And that was something used to create the conflict between the two of them. They also not only have this oil sharing, but also um, the they've signed agreements to develop the resources in the Caspian Sea together. And the Caspian Sea, including what's on the border of of Kazakhstan, like the uh, Chalus gas fields in the uh, waters of of the Caspian uh, around Kazakhstan, which are being developed. Um, these are game changers. You know, this is like we're talking um, one tenth of the biggest reserves in the world in this one tiny zone. And according to Gazprom, if you if you tap into that, that's a five point four trillion dollar value. And it could supply the European Union with enough of its to, to meet all of its or 52 percent of its natural gas needs for the next 20 years alone. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. now you actually have rail and other other forms of pipelines and infrastructure which have been prohibited because partially sanctions, partially conflict. Iran has a lot of oil in the south, but they can't get it because they haven't had the means to build very expensive um, oil and energy transportation uh, grids that they need to do. But now that you have this new sphere of influence and also um, the uh, president uh, Raisi of Iran has even called for um, a... Uh, a new financing mechanism, like a new bank for this region to fund its development. Turkey is on board as well. Turkey and Iran have just signed a few days ago a new cooperation agreement. So they're no longer in this enemy footing, but they have made an agreement towards um, cooperation on a whole variety of levels, transport, energy, trade, you name it. Um, And there's discussion now of advancing and finalizing a a free trade zone as well, or at least a, a zone of preferential tariffs 
to really encourage the integration of this entire zone. Um, Iran and the UAE, another Gulf state, is now finally going through a, a very positive uh, entente where you have um, a new age that's being declared of uh, UAE Russian uh, Iranian relations. You have uh, uh, Iran and Iraq, was like it, I said. Is it hmm? Yemen that- as well? Was uh, was Iran yes. also uh, providing a lot of aid and support to Yemen as well? Correct, or, or am I am I wrong? Yeah, about yeah, that? yeah. That's right. Yeah, I mean, Iran has been see the two biggest powers in the Middle East have been Saudi Arabia and Iran vying for sort of influence. Uh, Saudi Arabia, much more uh, useful uh, tool. The Wahhabite uh, groupings have been much more useful at being a conduit to support the rise of radical uh, terrorist groups all over the Islamic world and even China and even Africa um, and beyond. Um, but they've been vying for control and now increasingly Saudi Arabia. Yeah, they they had gone for, a, it's been a six year war now to just crush the the resistance, the Houthi resistance in uh, in Yemen, which has a lot of support from Iran, also from Hezbollah and um and it was supposed to be just a couple of weeks to be crushed because, I mean, who are they, right? This little tiny group. And up until 2018, it was looking as more and more as though the Houthis were going to be destroyed. But um, through, again, the the help of Iran, Soleimani, who was assassinated in 2020 in January, played a big role in creating a, a sort of uh, program to help Yemen not only develop its own indigenous, its its, its sovereign, independent means of building its um, military equipment, which it used excellently in various surprising ways that involved really going on a counterattack because there, oh, yeah. there were hundreds of bombs every single month. And that went down to like three bombings a year after they attacked the Saudi oil field or the Saudi uh, oil tanker, which is a huge, huge surprise. Nobody thought that they could do that. And since then, they, they've done a variety of creative maneuvers and got a lot of their territory back. And now it looks like that war is, is on the verge of being of ending finally. Yeah. 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 So, you Hopefully, know, the Gulf yeah, states, mm, yeah, no, I was just going to say just real quick, you know, yeah, that, I mean, that was the only, you know, to me in terms of any type of foreign policy as it relates to the U S uh, you know, not to get too far off the conversation, but mm. you know, at one time, you know, Biden had threatened to stop aiding uh, the Saudis in, in Yemen to stop providing the air cover and, and, uh, you know, you know, and nothing really ever happened. I think it just, you know, once he got into the office, they're like, no, that's not going to happen. We just have to continue these things. And so, yeah, yeah. it's very, very unfortunate for um, uh, for Yemen and the amount of uh, things that have happened there. So it'd be nice to see some humanitarian effort to go in and help help the people there. Big time. Yeah. And what we're seeing now is is like not only are does it look very, very seriously like Yemen will finally achieve its victory. Um, but also Syria, you know, like the the what we've seen coming out of the Saudi Arabia, UAE, Turkey, these were all major enemies of Syria just a few years ago, calling for Bashar al-Assad's ouster for much of the past 10 years. And now through the help primarily or the driving, I think, creative force of Russian and Chinese diplomacy, we've seen Wang Yi moving through the Middle East, through Africa, organizing with the um, the Arab League the reintegration of Syria into the fold because they had been kicked out uh, when the fighting began, the civil war. Well, I, I won't even call it a civil war. It was, it was, you know, it was a regime change. Um, and now we're seeing them officially, the announcement has been made. They're going to be reintegrated back into the Arab league. Um, you have uh, the Turkish and Syrian, uh, the head of 
Turkish and Syrian intelligence had met together uh, six weeks ago. They had a very important meeting on collaborating. All countries are essentially recognizing um, Syria's right to sovereignty. They're recognizing Bashar al-Assad as the indisputed leader. He was elected with a with a vast majority in uh, July of 2021. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so you have also with this new type of stabilization potential, also with the help of Iran, you have finally the ability to uh, move faster on a real reconstruction program that involves um, the help of, of China and Iran and, well, China big time. I mean, Chinese fund funding in this process because China has the most economic, economically independent banking system in the world. They have four uh, national banks. All of the rest of the nations of the world were induced over time to privatize their central banks, which has really handicapped the ability for nations to break free of this uh, hydra. Um, China alone has maintained control and has, with also the creation of the the uh, internet, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, and uh, and many other banks like the BRICS Development Bank, um, they've been able to create new mechanisms that will that can emit large scale credit for projects that are 15, 20, 30 years into the future. Yeah, um, this Tur- is one of the. Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, you know, Turkey, you know, Erdogan, I've always kind of regarded him as a, as the candle in the uh, in the wind because it seemed like he always kind of drifted back and forth. Being a NATO member, not quite certain which direction to go, yeah. Matthew. Yeah, uh, yeah. However, however, with most recent events, and I'm sure any type of intelligence gathering effort on the effort on the U.S. part, I think Erdogan is probably is going to continue the, the the progress to shift away from the West. Hence the quote unquote currency crisis that's occurring there uh, right now. So I think it's, yeah, there's a huge banking attack, uh, a financial attack on the Turkish currency, right. And, uh, and has a lot to do with the fact that, yeah, like Turkey not only has completely at this point, it's not, it's not ambiguous. If you asked me a few months ago, I would have been more ambiguous about what their role, what, what Erdogan's intentions were. Now at this point, I'm completely convinced where, where he, what he wants to, to do. Um, he firmly sees Turkey's entire future is in the restabilization of the of the Middle East and cooperation with China. Um, the middle corridor, he said, is Turkey's future. The middle corridor is the what I what I showed up up here in red, which does go through Turkey, and mm. even the southern corridor will potentially go through Turkey, as will the north south development corridor. Turkey has a future with this orientation, not with the the Titanic of the EU. And if you look at, you know, he's already ar- arrested Soros operatives. Um, he has clamped down on the uh, Uyghur terrorist groups, like the World Uyghur Congress, that has tried to use Turkey as a as a headquarters to destabilize China. He has completely cracked down on them. Um, his opponents, political opponents, are completely are, are being used as proxies of the West to try to say, no, let's give more more support to these. Uh, anti-China groups, uh, separatist movements, or um, the Kurds even, like the, the a lot of the political opponents who are getting support from the Soros apparatus and USAID, um, who are enemies of Erdogan, are saying, no, let's actually re, um, re-empower the Kurdish uh, uh, People Workers Party, which is a registered terrorist group on, you know, <laughs> for most of the nations of the world recognize this as a terrorist group. Um, but let's re-empower them anyway to become legitimized in inside of Turkey, even offering parliamentary uh, positions. So Erdogan right now is, is facing a multi-level attack on currency warfare, all sorts of asymmetrical warfares. But it's because he's breaking free 
and really putting his his future and Turkey's future in the hands of something which works. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, you see it now. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think, uh, like you said, the the 2016 um, Fethullah Gulen debacle was another bit of a wake up call too. you know, he, he was, you know, Turkey had shot down already a, uh, a Russian jet. That almost created a war between NATO countries and Russia. Then you had Fethullah Gulen, who's a U.S. asset running a, a weird, uh, you know, cult internationally, with which is highly embedded, kind of like a, a Muslim version of the Fabian Society, uh, embedded within all branches of the, of the Turkish bureaucracy and deep state. This was triggered to, to do a coup d'etat, which Russia saved Erdogan from by providing forward intelligence a few minutes before it was going to happen, giving him enough time to get on a helicopter and, and get to safety. Um, but that was another wake-up call. This is, again, a, a U.S.-directed uh, destabilization operation. So since then, now we see if this program for the, for example, 2018 provisional agreement between Iraq and Iran uh, continues with the rail extending the way we see we see it already moving between Shalom Shea and Basra, uh, this is one of the many very positive, exciting developments that could occur in the coming decade or, or sooner even. Um, with a real Syrian reconstruction program. Also, Lebanon, Lebanon desperately needs this as well. They could be a pearl on the Silk Road, as is often is often called. Um, Bashar al-Assad has made it clear um, that there will be a revival of great infrastructure projects, and he's made this known on several occasions since 2019. Um, what you have here, I have a, an image I think this was an image produced by the Schiller Institute. I'm not too sure. I got it off of a video. But this is a, an outline of Bashar al-Assad's Five Seas vision connecting the Caspian, Black Sea, Mediterranean, Red Sea, and Persian Gulf with railroads and industrial development corridors, with Syria being sort of the linchpin of development. And back in 2011, Bashar al-Assad, before the Arab Spring really blew up his country, he had organized something like, like 11 different nations, including Turkey, to sign on to memoranda of understanding to cooperate on building the five C's vision. So this is a, a completely synergistic with the BRI connections throughout the Middle East, as we know, and also into Africa with Egypt and Jordan, and maybe eventually Israel, who knows, <laughs> you know, you can't fight this, this type of development forever. Yeah, Finally, right. Exactly. Exactly. Role. Yeah. So 2011, you know, this is a, a big deal because, uh, the world was moving in a certain direction. This is before the Belt and Road Initiative was unveiled. If it had been unveiled, I don't, I don't know if this sort of thing could have could have happened. But the BRI and the Russian uh, decision to start putting its body in front of in front of the firing squads of targeted nations all began after two, 2013, and after the Arab Spring started burning uh, the Arab world. But at that same time, you had also Libya, right? So Syria wasn't going at this type of thinking. Alone, you also had Gaddafi building the uh, great man-made water project, which involved desalination of water from the Mediterranean, as well as the tapping into water from underneath the Sahara and moving it to the surface under a multi-phase project. And it was well underway. I think it was they were on phase two with the help of Canada's SNC-Lavalin uh, construction firm, which was the, the primary contractor helping them to build this incredible project. And... Um, and that was all destroyed by NATO. So when NATO destroyed Libya, they primarily focused, like they did it on Iraq earlier, a decade earlier, um, they focused on infrastructure first, and that was annihilated. To this very day, this has become a, a complete zone of chaos throughout the entire Northern, Northern Africa world. And it wasn't just, you know, like Libya at that time, 2011, they were also working with uh, Mubarak 
of uh, of Egypt and of uh, President Bashir of Sudan. So there was a, a complete new economic block setting itself up to provide long-term credit um, outside of the IMF or World Bank manipulation for big projects. And again, it's unfortunate that the Russia-China alliance hadn't evolved to the to the place that it has today, because otherwise, I don't think that the type of regime change we saw then could have happened. Um, but this was destroyed. You had um, the same players who have come back in with Biden were there under Obama, like Susan Rice, who was the architect, you know, and she's another Soros operative, a Rhodes Scholar, who was the architect of the breaking up of Sudan into North and South Sudan in order to better get them to fight each other and break up the development of the amazing resource potential so south of Libya um, and south of, of, of Egypt, more south of Egypt, um, which, again, there's just so much potential for the Sudan. And, uh, and this brings me to my next point of Egypt today. So I yes. recently wrote an article called the, uh, will Egypt be Libya 2.0 or a driver for an economic African Renaissance? And what you have is a picture there on the right of the grand Renaissance dam. It is the largest infrastructure project in African history. It's a 6,200 megawatt, uh, dam being built up on the Blue Nile. That's an image of it there on the left, on the bottom with the big uh, yellow circle. The next biggest dam in Africa is the Aswan Dam in Egypt in the south. And it's almost completed. I mean, they're filling up re reservoirs right now. It's beginning to produce electricity. And this is something which Egypt has, it, they began building it. Actually, Haile Selassie, the, the leading uh, Pan-African leader back in the 1970s, actually the 1960s, Emperor Haile Selassie was uh, spearheading this project with the help of John F. Kennedy's America that did the feasibility studies for it way, way back when. Unfortunately, that United States fell um, with the death of Bobby Kennedy and the rise of Kissinger um, and the Trilateral Commission. So no longer did Egypt, uh, Ethiopia get that support. And in a certain moment in 1974, Selassie was overthrown in a coup. This project was, was dustbinned. And it was in 2011 that it was revived. And since then, what you've seen coming out of the Egypt was a fight of how do we fund it? And, and at first they wanted, the, the leaders of Egypt, uh, sorry, of Ethiopia wanted to get the IMF and World Bank and, and the U.S. to help by providing development aid to, to do this. Of course, they couldn't get it. Aid can only go towards building so solar panels, you know, in the Sahara. <laughs> exactly. The yeah. Yeah. They need yeah. it. <laughs> So, so instead, what did they do? They basically went back into their heritage and realized that there was a model of financing, which was originally pioneered by the United States. I brought it up in the beginning of, of, and, and it was adopted in the late 1890s by an emperor in Ethiopia to fund rail and road development. Unfortunately, that was cr uh, crushed after a few years in Ethiopia. But the idea was, like Lincoln did with the uh, financing of the transcontinental railway, you don't go ask private bankers for high interest loans with conditions. You don't do that. If you want to build something that's going to be in the real interest of the nation, you want to have economic sovereignty over your policy, over the, the building of it. What Lincoln did is he did two things. One, he pr uh, created greenbacks. Number two, he began emitting what are called five to 20 bonds. That's bonds that have a five to 20 year maturation. And all citizens, only American citizens, or not only, but primarily American citizens invest in these. So the U.S., every individual citizen 
gets personal self-interest and profit as well as benefiting off of a project which is going to benefit the entire nation forever into the future. So these bonds were in, were began to be emitted by Ethiopia, $5 billion worth um, to build this project um, in a sovereign way. And so since then, all of the funding has come from Ethiopia for this uh, through the people buying these, these development bonds. And it's scaring the hell out of the, the city of London and Wall Street Axis, which doesn't want this sort of example to catch up, uh, catch on. Yeah. Um, this would obviously, when it's completed, become a driving force of the continent of Africa's development as a whole, uh, because you need energy. And, and a lot of this, I mean, there's a lot of conflict that's being manipulated by Egypt and Sudan right now. And both of the countries uh, to the north are that share the uh, the Nile are being manipulated into um, treating this as a threat because they're saying, well, if you build this dam, we're going to have less water. You're going to use all that water for your, your own agriculture and, and consumption, and we're going to have less. And so even Egypt and Sudan stupidly have even threatened to attack the dam. South Sudan is even entertaining hosting an Egyptian military base to better attack the dam. Egypt is is playing right now. I think they're a bit confused. I, I don't know where Egypt is going currently. Um, but this is a big danger. And on top of that, you have the the unveiling of, you know, where, where it failed to work in Syria using terrorist groups masquerading as rebel fighters for independence and democracy. Uh, that was the story in Syria. That didn't work there. Mm. Um, they're doing it now in Ethiopia to destabilize it by unveiling what's called the Tigray People's Liberation Movement, which is effectively, and I in, in my article, I go through the different uh, researchers who have proved that these are groups that from the north of Ethiopia have been deployed, um, working very closely with USAID, National Endowment for Democracy Operations, and other forms of clandestine warfare to destabilize Ethiopia and overthrow the current government of uh, Ahmed Abiy, uh, the mm, prime minister. Wow. Um, yeah. And so there has been, I mean, we have seen the, uh, uh, just a few weeks ago, there there was a, uh, a Zoom call with all of these US, British, European um, um, deep staters, <laughs> effectively, who uh, <laughs> all were on a call with the, um, what's his name, Berhane Gebre Christos, who's the foreign, the former foreign minister of Ethiopia back in 2009. And he's now the, the front man, the, the, the head of the uh, Tigray people, People's Liberation Movement. And they have been conducting, like I said, genocide in the various towns that they've taken control of, uh, child soldiers. And, you know, this, this Zoom call, which somebody recorded with their phone and, and put on YouTube, they made it public. Anyone can watch this. They spend two hours coordinating the overthrow of the currently elected government. Um, and in order to decentralize the government, get rid of the centralized power and democratize it so that it could become a participant in the rules-based international order. Um, on top of that, the same guy, Berhani, um, created and unveiled in Washington, D.C. just three weeks ago. In Washington at the National Press Club, he unveiled the United Front of Ethiopian Federalists and um, what's called uh, Confederalist Forces to try to create like an umbrella group of all anti-government forces to give it a semblance of cohesion um, that would then be designed to topple um, um, the you know Ethiopian government. 
And the idea is to just undo this project. Another reason why Ethiopia is targeted is that one, it has never been, it's the only African country to have never been colonized by any foreign Western power ever. It has always resisted successfully and the only one. That's why it has this amount of independence and that's why it is the most friendly uh, African nation to China. So the uh, Chinese have invested in a variety of infrastructure projects. The prize project, I think, has been the recently completed Addis Ababa Djibouti rail line, which Ethiopia is landlocked. But this moves, uh, this actually creates a direct gateway to the Red Sea. And also, as you can see there, Yemen, which if Yemen is liberated, it will be a major, major powerhouse and a strategic node. And it's very, it's not that hard. There's been engineering uh, studies on building a tunnel or a bridge across Eritrea to Yemen, hmm. um, which is vital if you're going to be able to build rail throughout the uh, the entire Middle Eastern zone um, and connect it through throughout Ethiopia and into the neighboring regions, Kenya is working very closely with China too, but they're also being pulled in the other direction. So everybody is sort of being pulled in two different worlds. Um, but this is a 750 kilometer rail, uh, electrified standard gauge rail line. It has completely transformed agriculture. Uh, it has upshifted the cognitive powers of the Ethiopians. There's new educational healthcare corridors that the Chinese have built, which are very different from the type of, of development aid we see coming out of the West. Um, one of the key guys, I, I forgot to mention this, the key engineer who was the sort of spokesman for the Grand Renaissance, and this is the Grand Renaissance Ethiopian Dam. I, yeah, I think I mentioned the name. His name was uh, Sigmenu uh, Bekele, who was really a brilliant guy. He'd organized a variety of dams and, and big projects in Ethiopia. Um, they killed him last year, um, or no, 2019. Um, he just, he was suicided in his car right before he was going to give a press conference on the development of the dam. So we don't know all the details of exactly that, but we know that there are a lot of people who want very much to sabotage this for a variety of reasons. But this could easily become, there's a lot of parallels, right, to what Bashar al-Assad was doing in 2011 with and what Gaddafi was doing in 2008, 9, 10, 11 with the great man-made water system. So just to say, it's very similar. The only difference between then and, and today is that today we do have the Iran-Russia-China alliance, which has... Now 140 countries, 47 sub-Saharan African countries, or no, 47 countries of Africa have signed on to the BRI. Um, 17 Arab states have signed on to the BRI. The Gulf countries are beginning to eat their humble pie and realize that the future is located with this type of development package. Um, Africa as a whole, they've got a choice to make. They can go with the, the COP26 depopulation agenda of getting just, you know, decarbonization. Getting They, they could receive money that's not worth anything anyway, because the West is going into a hyperinflationary collapse. So they could get money to, you know, not develop and maybe build solar panels, or they could go with the China-Russia approach, which Ethiopia is spearheading, um, of connecting real rail, standard gauge, or even high-speed rail as it moves towards that higher platform of technology that could, for the first time, connect the entire continent, um, which the British, the, you know, the French, the Belgians, had never permitted as colonialists, they've never permitted similar gauge rail to be built ever in the continent of Africa. And which is why today Africa looks as you see it there in the picture on the left, which is, this is a, an, an, a definitely one of the best pictures I've ever found. And this was done by the Schiller Institute. I think it was uh, Hussein Askari. And it was a, uh, a picture of what Africa looks like today. There's no good reason for this whole zone to be just there's no light, right? A picture of yeah. Africa at night. 
just compare yeah. it to Europe. So hmm. interesting. That is a great picture. It's incredible. And there's on the left, on the right, what you could have within if Africa's uh, project for uh, 2068 is permitted to go through. This is uh, something that the African Union, with the help of the Chinese, um, have put on the on the agenda is a real driving development project that would really see a, a, a destruction of poverty, not of lives <laughs> for the first time. And, you know, like there if you look at it today, the statistics are, are abysmal with all of the trillions of dollars of money thrown at Africa over the over the past 60 years of, of neocolonialism. Why is it still like that? Why has none of that money been permitted to go towards real nation building the way we've benefited in the West? Um, why are there still upwards of 100 uh, infant mortalities per 1,000 births in many African countries? Um, why the extreme poverty, right? The, the <laughs> right. greatest roots of lack of, of potable water and electricity are found Why hold them Africa. back? It makes no sense at all. Not at yeah, all. Yeah, no and it would actually be much better business partners, right? It's smarter business to actually have people living a long time at a high quality of life, producing a lot with manufacturing in their countries, they would be able to not only buy more from us, we'd be able to buy higher quality goods from them and not just treat them like a, uh, like a, a resource extraction zone in a, in a dystopic weird future. Um, so right there, like it, it makes perfectly good sense. It's not just benevolent angelic behavior from China. It's like China's is recognizing that there's a higher power of natural law that governs real self-interest which is in the in a form of of self-interest which benefits everybody who participates in certain types of creative endeavors and yeah. there's just another picture i found from uh a, you know again the Schiller institute has just these wonderful images and this is one from uh what you could see if you can really stabilize the the southwest asia um you could really start seeing branching off points of the southern corridor of the belt and road initiative um, throughout all of Tehran, um, as well is into Saudi Arabia and to Mecca, you know, you could actually take high speed rail to Mecca, maybe in the next 20 or 30 years that would connect all the way down into Yemen and, uh, and thence into Addis Ababa and throughout all, all of Africa with Cairo being another branching point connecting the Arab worlds with Africa. Um, we know the current government there generally wants development. They're generally very friendly to Russia and China. Um, so I don't see any reason why Cairo couldn't become a stabilizing force once again, just like Nasser had made it a long time ago. Mm -hmm. So that was really just what I wanted to paint as an, a more positive image from the insane basket case we tend to be uh, experiencing here when we look at our news and see what Washington or Ottawa or the European Union are doing. And it, and it just makes you want to, you know, just shake your head in somber disappointment for humanity when you yeah. see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it it does, Matthew, and that's um, a great breakdown and taking us through uh, the Middle East and the the opportunity that potentially is there for the emerging markets. The the million dollar question is: Is it too late for the West, in particular, you know, North America, to become involved? Uh, it could definitely be lucrative for a lot of people uh, in and mutual gain. Uh, however, you know, we simply refuse to do that. We would rather pass these. Two trillion dollar stimulus bill, and you know, give it to basically you know one person uh, in charge of the Department of Transportation to basically pick projects that they want to fund, and more than likely, all those projects will have to be some type of of green initiative, green deal, uh, and that's part of the frustration. But uh, yeah, great breakdown 
of that. And so um, any any uh, closing thoughts, Matthew, before we wrap this uh, this uh, session of the great game up? Any any co- closing comments? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think I love the way that you just juxtapose that with the Green New Deal type of crap you got coming out, because it's not like we're not willing to spend a lot of money. Um, it's, it's not a question of mechanism. That's the problem. It's a question of morality on the one hand and um, the right conceptual sense of what history is, what the human species is, because the people running the programming for the Green New Deal type of rules-based order operating system they want to use as an analog for understanding human beings, they want to use computer models. And computer models are just fine to use as a tool if you're doing something else, right? Like computer technology was driven forward in a massive way by uh, by the space program. Now, it's useful as a, an appendage, something to help make something else happen. But when you start making everything about the information and you start you start seeing that as your ideal model to, to, to shape everything else around. I mean, a computer is a closed system, right? A, mm-hmm. a computer program is, there's no creativity you get except for what the computer programmer might've had that they chose to put into their the formulas that build the operating system that the computer can then process and do certain things according to, you no, know, you could even get it to do certain types of, of machine learning. It could take and, you know, um, games of chess and improve upon its ability to play a game of chess because the chess has a fixed amount of rules. There's an mm. infinite amount of action you could do, but the rules are, are completely fixed. And according to that, it could it could learn from different types of behavioral choices by its opponent to, to get better, but yeah. it cannot produce a qualitatively different game than chess. Yeah. Um, anything it does is bounded by its, its ultimate root, um, uh, programming. Mm-hmm. So the the thing about the 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 Green New Deal uh, logic is that they say no, human beings are just like that. We are this fixed machine like species of human computer processors mixed with animalistic hedonistic impulses, and so we've got this di- you know the this problem that they have to solve, which yeah. is you know human beings. Whenever we just use our resources because that's what we do, right? We, we all live for a certain duration. Those resources within the system as a whole, the earth draw down. Now, since computers cannot discover a new law of the universe, it cannot discover what's, you know, you, you no computer can discover what's going on inside of the sun. That's going to require a new, a different type of thinking to discover processes like that. Yeah. Or it, it can't discover what's going on inside of the galactic center or in a supernova that's shaping the weather systems on the earth. No, it can't do those things. Um, so based on the fact that they say, well, human computers can only thus in, eat and consume, but not create, <laughs> we have to manage the population. We have to manage right. the thoughts that are permitted within the operating system of the population to better slow the rate of, of decay. They don't believe that you could even stop the rate of decay. They believe that you can maybe slow it down so that it'll it'll collapse later on maybe you we could kick it kick the can down the road a few centuries yeah and maybe do that by limiting population on the earth to whatever a billion maybe maybe a little bit less than a billion and uh do that for a variety of techniques that Malthus had innovated back in the 18th century uh you know using the gifts of war disease starvation other things that that uh nature gave us to to 
but that no that nature gave the strong to regulate the weak that's what i should yeah. say yeah um yeah well they you know matthew they have their their predetermined outcome and unfortunately you when the, when you go to input those variables right into the program and you already know the determined outcome that you want from it yeah. uh that's how they they control those things so there's very much a a lack of forward vision to think about what uh, humanity can do, the true growth of humanity. How can we evolve? How can we uh, adapt things through, through technology, not only to sustain the earth to grow, but also to to increase humanity. But I, I like what you said before we hit the go live button, that there are a lot of wins that are occurring right now. You know, globally, yeah. we see a, a, a big resistance uh, to this attempt to really uh, contain humanity through the lockdowns. Uh, we're seeing a big resistance movement to that. Uh, and then if you take a look at some of the accomplishments of what Russia and China is doing, uh, providing a, a footprint to that, one of the comments that came up in the in this chat was, it'll be interesting to see what is the first state uh, to become involved with the BRI initiative, whether it's a port, whether it's something that's developed. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll, we'll have to keep our eyes on on Latin America and in particular with with, yeah. with Mexico and 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 see what happens there i think that's going to be huge in terms of you know what level of things take place and and shifting the dynamics of the bri and the future of it yeah absolutely well said man yeah south america like the whole ibero-american region uh zone is gonna it really has a lot of potential and like you said yeah mexico is they only have one chance of a future and it is with this bri orientation um china has i mean a, a controlling stake in something like 40 ports across across uh latin america it's huge yeah, and yeah, uh huge. so while while the west was you know the western deep state was just busy obsessing over how to do a color revolution and unseat you know donald trump between 2016 and 20 2020 they were just putting all of their their resources into russia gate and all this stuff china and russia were actually building alliances they were using their time very well and now we're beginning to start seeing the fruits of, of a lot of that labor blossom in very unexpected ways which the best thing about people who think uh, like computers is that they can easily be creatively flanked. They're not creative. Yeah. So yep. in that sense, we are seeing a lot of good surprises coming out, which is throwing this uh, great resetting machine like zombie Borg thing into a bit of a, a crisis loop. So yep. that's good. Yep. And so I would say for people who want to... Uh, you know, get involved a little bit more with some of the lectures. You know, I, I try to promote this every week, but, uh, you know, every Sunday at 2 p.m., um, the Rising Tide Foundation hosts uh, lectures on, uh, right now we're doing a history series. We did uh, something on the real reasons for the assassination of Alfred Herrhausen, the Deutsche Bank president back in 1989. Uh, that was la our last lecture on Sunday. Um, we're going to do something on the CIA's cultural warfare against Germany in the post-World War II period. Uh, for this coming week, we're going to do something on JFK by uh, Ed Curtin, um, a wonderful journalist, um, on December 19th. And we're going to have a whole series on uh, on Renaissance literature and history in the new year. So anybody who wants to get involved with that, I ask them just to, you know, send a, an email at info at risingtidefoundation.net. Um, you can pose a question, get to know other people who are all truth seekers. And um, if you get a Substack subscription, so if you get a paid Substack, for either myself or Cynthia, my wife, um, who I think is going to be interviewed on your show uh, sometime soon. Yeah, we're excited for that. Uh, yeah, uh, we will send you free invitations uh, to the uh, the weekly events as well. So just keep that in mind. Awesome. 
Very good. Matthew, thank you so much for that. And for our listeners tuning in, uh, don't forget, do us a favor. Uh, all the links to Matthew's works are in the comments or in the description of this video. Go there, bookmark them, uh, participate. And then while you're there, don't forget to go to roguenews.com. Also like, share, subscribe. So Matthew, thank you so much for a great conversation and look forward to next week. Absolutely. All right. Take, take care. Thanks. Bye.